at this stage, you had brought together many, many competing entities in the United States. And now you had to bring many, many entities across the globe, which meant this new entity had to transcend geography, custom, culture, language, political systems, and different democracies and different economic systems. And this must have been a massive challenge. And the really fascinating thing I thought about this was that they wanted the same entity, i.e. you and your team, to do this as well as the current geographies that you managed. Yes, Aiden, it presented us with a whole new set of problems. Primarily among them uh, was extending the electronic authorization system and the electronic draft clearing system from just operating in the U.S. to operating worldwide. And that meant instead of just exchanging things in a single currency under a single legal system and common cultures, it meant instead of one, dozens and eventually hundreds of different entities. Rather than go into the details, the base one and base two systems, that's authorization and draft clearing, have duplicate centers one in the west part of the U.S. and one in the east. And each one of the computer centers had to have the capacity to not only handle all the transactions in its area, but in the event of a national disaster, handle all of the transactions of the system. Then, of course, with extending it internationally, That meant a whole new computer system in Europe and one in Latin America and one in the Asia-Pacific area. So the problem of greatly expanding those and creating redundant systems throughout the world was major. And, of course, we used our usual tradition of just depending on our staff and doing it a piece at a time. Another need was for a multilingual staff and offices overseas. And that meant bringing in people uh, from different cultures and attempting to unify them into a cohesive operation. We were faced with enormous operational and mechanical systems, but that was, was not at all the major problem. The major problem was what I would call a mess of differing names. When the B of A started licensing this overseas, uh, the only commonality was the blue, white, and gold bands design. The first bank in England, Barclays Bank, called it the Barclay card in blue bands, and it was the Canadian banks called theirs Chargex, and in Japan, it was the Sumitomo Bank card. And on and on, every bank had a different name for it. And then, of course, as they signed merchants, the deck halls on the merchants' windows and locations would say, uh, Sumitomo card, welcome here in Japan. And someone coming from England, where it was called Barclay Card, would be confused about whether their Barclay Card was good in the Sumitomo uh, system in Japan. 
So it, it was causing enormous acceptance problems and confusion problems on the part of clerical people in uh, the selling entities of knowing uh, just what they could accept. Now, knowing that problem has existed, when uh, we formed Ibanco and obtained a license from Bank of America, global exclusive license to use the blue, white, and gold bands design, I had anticipated that Sunday we'd have to have a new name. So I had negotiated a provision in the license that if 90% of the banks worldwide and 90% of the boards were to select a new common name, that if and when that was done, the blue bands, the ownership of them, would transfer from Bank of America to the international organization. So uh, within a couple of years after forming a Banco, the need for that name became critical. And how to do it was the problem. And of course, I had had a tradition of depending on our staff for doing things like this and not using consultants. So the first thing we did is make a list of criteria that any name would have to meet. It had to be short, graphic, pronounceable in any language in the world, capable of being marketed effectively. It couldn't have any institutional content, so it couldn't say bank, because we didn't know but what we would be bringing in other financial institutions. <clears throat> it couldn't have any geographic connotations, so it couldn't say U.S. or Europe or anything like that. Couldn't have any legal connotations. It had to be capable of worldwide trademark protection for financial services and publications. And above all else, it had to be developed in a totally confidential way because if anyone knew we were attempting this, they would uh, rush out and try to trademark it in order to extract a big payment from us when we wanted to use it. So what I did is call the whole staff together from the newest clerical person to myself and say, look, here is the problem, here is the criteria, and whoever can come up with this name will give a commemorative check for $100. And I knew that sum was so small that they wouldn't hoard their ideas. And then I just told them to do whatever you want, write computer programs, create new names, find old names, and then we had a small committee of, of senior officers who would vet whatever was proposed and see what happened. So we proposed that to the staff on a confidential basis, and everybody in the organization started working on it, whether they were in marketing or systems or whatever. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things were suggested. 
But as we filtered through them, one just kept re-emerging. And it was Visa. And it met all of our criteria, but we didn't know whether it had already been used somewhere. So we did a, a very quiet and thorough search worldwide of all trademark registrations under that name and discovered there was a Visa card and Visa golf clubs and Visa fabrics and all sorts of uses, but we couldn't find any trademark recorded for its use for financial services or publications. So this was all done very quietly. We didn't go to the boards. They knew we were working on it, but they didn't know what or when it would emerge. And once we had settled on that, we quickly filed international trademark protections in every jurisdiction in the world for the use of that name for financial services and publications and were successful in getting that done. Now, then we had the immense problem of getting approval of 90% of both international and domestic boards and 90% of all members worldwide, all banks, which then numbered in the thousands. And that was a tremendous effort. We introduced what we had done to both boards and then gave them time to consider it and took it up at a number of meetings. And eventually it came down to a final meeting, which was scheduled in a nice resort in Hawaii of both boards. and. there had, as you can imagine, been a lot of objection because it meant that virtually every form, every electric sign, every card, every detail of where name or trademarks were shown had to be changed. And of course, that was a massive undertaking But the first problem was to get approval to do it. And at the final meeting in Hawaii, uh, there was, of course, some opposition. And uh, we followed our practice of having the working meetings in the morning and then the afternoons and evenings for relaxation and individual discussions. So I remember vividly and having people from England who didn't want to make the change and in France, and in Japan, and a number. And so I I used my usual procedure of trying to find each one of them individually and educe the behavior that I thought was essential. So uh, the uh, representative from England, uh, Barclay Card, was, of course, enamored of all the warmth and sunshine and liked to spend his time and afternoons on the beach. So I, I managed to locate him at one time when he was relaxing on the beach. 
and pulled up a lounge next to where he was lying and lay in the sun for over an hour and a half talking to him and drawing pictures in the wet sand of what we anticipated doing and why it was essential and important. And little by little, he come to understand it and I obtained his agreement to support it in the board meeting. As soon as I was through, I went to him and he told me that the representative who represented all the French banks had been offended by somebody and and he was angry and decided he was going to boycott the meeting and go home and had changed his uh, airline reservation. And I said, well, where is he? And they pointed out to sea, and he was a man who had been a former Olympic swimmer. And so, of course, he was most comfortable in the water. And I could see him quite a ways offshore, and I could swim reasonably well, but not nearly with his capacity. But I decided perhaps if I could meet him in the water, he might be a little more amenable. So I had managed to paddle my way out and he was just luxuriating and almost like a seal in the water and I of course was just struggling to keep my head above water and talk to him and I pointed out to him how important the French banks were to this whole effort and that uh, while he had uh, been offended I doubted that the person who had offended him really had intended to do so And gradually, bit by bit, I got his agreement to cancel his new reservation and stay throughout the meeting and support the name change. So, you know, person by person, I attempted to get some condition to be for the next day when the decision would be taken one way or the other. And when we met the next day, Our representative from Japan, whom I knew quite well, and he was with the Sumitomo Bank, and the Sumitomo family descended from samurai warriors and eventually gone into banking. At the board meeting, when he wanted to speak, he he did in typical Japanese fashion, told a story of a small, elegant bonsai tree that had been uh, created by his great-grandfather and had been carefully tended by four generations of the family. And he was very concerned, he told the board, that this meeting was keeping him away from his duty to keep the bonsai tree alive and healthy. And he hoped that we would be able to uh, conclude what was necessary so he could return. And I knew that he was really saying something entirely different. And I interpreted it for the board and said, our representative from the Sumitomo Bank has the problem with tending this elegant tree. And I think uh, beneath that, there's another message that he's really saying We're talking too much, and it's time to take a decision and get on with it, and that there are more important things than a name change for a credit card. 
And as I sort of interpreted this for the board, I could see him uh, with a, a light smile on his face and so on. And then I ended up by telling the board, I, for one, would not like to arouse the samurai spirit of the Sumitomo family, nor would I like to take any responsibility for the death of the tree. So perhaps the time has come to uh, take a vote here. And of course, uh, everyone did. And uh, the story he told had just had such an effect on the board that we we obtained consent of every member of the board to changing the name from all of this multitude of other names to the single name of Visa. And then each bank would have space on the card to say the Sumitomo Visa card or the ChargeX Visa card. Uh, so they still could have their identity. But on merchant locations, it had to be just Visa, nothing else, so that cardholders would clearly see that their card would be acceptable there. So uh, the first step in changing the name was over, but that by no means was the end of the problem. In previous sessions, you talked about how you let teams emerge and you really went after good people and you let good people manage themselves, then superiors and then peers. And that was a challenge in the country you were used to, which was in the USA. But doing that at an international level presented huge challenges. So here in Hawaii, you were really getting to the essence and understanding people. Could you share a little bit about how you manage that on an international level? You have to understand that virtually everything we did was based on a philosophy of various concepts. Often, uh, when I developed those philosophies, it literally reversed the traditional ways of thinking. And the concept of forgetting about management and leading yourself and then leading your superiors and leading your peers and employing good people and freeing them to do the same was fundamental to everything we did. Because if you once come to believe in that philosophy, if you fail, the responsibility is entirely your own. There's no one to blame. And at first, when you think about that, that seems like an impossible burden to bear. But when you reflect on it, it's really not to be feared or avoided because success, well, it often provides encouragement, build confidence, and is, is really joyful indeed, also teaches an insidious lesson, and that's to have too high an opinion of yourself. And uh, it's from failure that amazing growth so often comes, provided only that one can recognize it, admit it, learn from it, rise above it, and try again. There's no reason to be discouraged by shortcomings. True leadership presumes a standard quite beyond human perfectibility. 
and that's quite all right. The only question of importance is whether one is steadily rising in the scale. Now, it's, it's easy to test this concept. Uh, reflect a moment on group endeavors of which you're an observer rather than a participant. If your interest runs to sports, you can undoubtedly remember when a team seemed to rise above the ability, the combined ability of all the players, and achieve a magical, seemingly effortless performance in the zone, in the parlance of sports. And that same phenomenon can be observed in the ballet, the theater, the symphony, in fact, any group endeavor, including business and government. Now, every choreographer or conductor or coach, or for that matter, corporation executives, has tried to distill the essence of such a performance and countless others have tried to explain and reduce it to a controlled, measurable, repeatable process. And that has never been done and never will be. It's easily observed, universally admired, and occasionally experienced. It's rarely long sustained, but can occasionally be repeated. And it arises spontaneously from the relationships and interaction of the individuals who compose the group. Now, some groups seem able to achieve it with some consistency, just as some leaders are able to create the conditions under which it can occur in different organizations. But none of them can predict when or how it will happen. Now, to be more precise, you can't speak of causing organizations to achieve superlative performance, for no one can cause it to happen. Leaders can only recognize and modify conditions that prevent it. They can perceive and articulate a sense of community and a vision of the future along with a body of principles of behavior in pursuit of that vision, that's something to which people can become passionately committed and then encouraged and enabling them to bring forth the extraordinary capabilities that lie trapped in everyone waiting to be abused. So without question, the most abundant, least expensive, most underutilized and constantly abused resource in the world today is human ingenuity. And the source of that abuse is the mechanistic industrial age dominating concepts of organization and the management practices they spawn. It's really instructive to look into the nature of leaders who've had a profound effect on the direction of society. Buddha, Gandhi, Christ, Nelson Mandela, Mohammed, Galileo, Lao Tzu, Newton, Thoreau, the list goes on and on, from every race in every field of endeavor. Now, few of these leaders came from positions of wealth and power. Few were born into families of fame or fortune, and few of them were great orators. 
and none of them were elected to do what they did. None had permission to do what they did. Most were met in the beginning with contempt and derision. Yet somehow, their lives had a profound effect on the consciousness of mankind. What they had in common was uncommon ability to get beyond how things were and how they are or how they might become and immerse themselves in how they ought to be. But even a clear vision of how things ought to be was not the essential thing. The essential thing was conviction that the world as they believed it was already in existence in the minds and hearts of all people and could be adduced if one lived in accordance with that belief. They didn't do so in the pursuit of fame, money, power, or material gain. They did so because they could not do otherwise, because it was what they had become. They lived lives of such authenticity that it gave what they had to say compelling force and effect. The way they lived their lives educed behavior that lies buried in everyone waiting to come forth. They went before and showed the way. Now, one also has to examine corrupt leaders who have induced or compelled embalmable behavior. Hitler, Stalin, Paul Pot, Idi Amin, and a host of others. What they had in common is not difficult to see. Lust for power, wealth, and fame, together with a willingness to ruthlessly use force and barbarity to bend others to their will. What differentiates the despotic from the beneficent leader is values, the moral, ethical, and spiritual content of the purpose and principles from which they derive their being. Corrupt leaders behave in a world as they want it to be, not as it ought to be, and believe such a world is also in existence in everyone, waiting for someone powerful enough to bend them to his will. And in my view, the answer that we're seeking may be the greatest question of the millennium. And it's resting in the heart and soul of every person alive today, especially the young, waiting to be adduced or perhaps compelled. So the question is, what will be their consciousness, their perception, their values, their internal model of reality? Will it be beneficent, pacific and equitable and just, or will it be destructive, violent? inequal, unjust, what will be their becoming? It means we must examine the concept of leader-follower with new eyes. We must examine it, uh, the concept of superior and subordinate with increasing skepticism. We must examine the concept of management and labor with new perspective and we must examine the nature of organizations 
that demand such archaic concepts with entirely different consciousness. It's true leadership, leadership by everyone, in, up, around, and down this world so badly needs, and domination management it so sadly gets. The building on those concepts of leadership, adducing behavior from people, you now have to adduce behaviors from a whole mass of businesses, a whole mass of banks, not just one. Many marketing individuals, marketing professionals listen to this show, and they will know what a big undertaking a name change project is for one business. But to do it across an entire industry represented an immense obstacle, an immense challenge. Indeed it did, Aiden. But in approaching this problem, it was obvious to us that if every plastic card had to be reissued with Visa in the middle band, and every business card, every form, every billing, every draft, every merchant decal, every advertising program had to be modified, that it would be impossible for any central person or authority to know the details of this kind of change, uh, let alone the culture and the traditions. And, and so uh, it was completely impossible to design, plan, and detail and execute such a program, let alone management in the process. So it became obvious that if this was to happen, it had to be educed, educed from every member of the system, that they were the ones who knew how to do it in their area, their organization, their circumstances. So what we decided is that we would simply create a time frame. It was three years. And we'd create the standards and the operating regulations detailing how this new name had to be shown. Then we would simply say to the entire system that uh, the boards had uh, decided to do this and uh, it would be up to each individual bank how they wanted to proceed, how they wanted to do it how they wanted to explain it, and that no central control other than the standards for displaying it and the trademark protection would be done centrally. But at the end of the three-year period, every member would be have been responsible for making this change any way they wanted to do it, in any time frames, in any, for any reason. And what I was expecting and hoping would happen, did happen. Because this was the newest thing, and most of our merchants and cardholders had become accustomed to us doing innovative things, some of the more perceptive banks and larger programs saw an opportunity 
to execute their change in a very short period of time and then market it as uh, the newest and latest from uh, the blue, white, and gold system, which would now become Visa. Well, of course, the, the moment one or two banks made an almost immediate conversion and started marketing it, it created the pressure on all the others to get on with it because their cardholder base and their merchant base was at risk if they uh, really liked the new system. The amazing thing that happened was this action and reaction, what I call self-organization and self-governance, commenced, and instead of three years, in one year from the time it was announced, you would uh, have to hunt extremely hard to find a, a merchant decal or a sign or a form or a card that wasn't uh, entirely consistent with the new program. So the, the self-organization resulted in uh, a complete conversion and a third the time expected with, uh, with virtually nothing done centrally other than standards of showing it. And by 1976, it was all done. National Bank of America Card, Inc. in U.S. was changed to Visa USA. The Banco name was changed to Visa International Service Association. The acronym, of course, is VISA or Visa. And the number of member banks, cardholders, merchants, and volume uh, simply exploded, and uh, with uh, Visa just leaped ahead of its competitors. And largely, my dream was realized. The dream I've had, I had six years before of creating the world's premier system for the exchange of value was realized. I think it's important for us to remember that you realize this dream using brand new behaviors, self-organization, self-organized behaviors, non-mechanistic behaviors, natural behaviors. And you were pioneers. Your you and your team were pioneers. You were creating new innovations, things that never had done before based on a vision of the future. For example, point-of-sale technologies, magnetic stripe technologies, debit cards, Visa Traveler's Checks, there was a raft of brand new innovations that you and your team brought to the world that we take for granted today. But the big message I got was that despite all these successes, you were pioneers and pioneers take the arrows. And so oftentimes you did, you were victims of your own success. As you say, Aiden, challenges tend to intensify you. It's what I call becoming the victims of your own success that uh, you can be victimized by success. Since everything that we were faced with, virtually everything had never been done before, whether it was uh, pioneering electronic point-of-sale terminals or electronic descriptive billing or magnetic stripe technology or debit cards or 
visa traveler's checks or check guarantee system or a global automated teller system or redundant data systems and dozens of other innovations. But we did this by constantly pushing decentralization of authority and functions. Uh, for example, uh, once we had a converted visa, uh, the bylaws uh, were amended to allow the right of members to organize at any time, at any scale, for any reason. And if they wanted to create a visa organization that was consistent with all of our purpose and principles, uh, they were uh, free to do that. And if they did so and applied for jurisdiction, the Visa International Board uh, would be required under its bylaws to consent to that and to give them jurisdiction over an, a certain area of the world uh, and to maintain that indefinitely as long as they didn't violate any of the purpose and principles of the international organization. Well, uh, over the years then, the Europeans formed their own visa organization. Latin America did so. Uh, Asia did so. Uh, and uh, that would mean that they then would be responsible for all of the marketing and operations within their jurisdiction, and they would hold a single membership in the international uh, on behalf of all those organizations. And that also meant, for example, when uh, Visa Europe was formed, that the Scandinavian banks had the right to form a Visa Scandinavia. And uh, within that, uh, the banks in uh, Denmark would have the right to form a Danish uh, uh, Visa. And therefore, it would be a cascading series of organizations from an individual bank to a national consortium of banks to a regional consortium and right on up to the Visa Central Organization. Um, and uh, in the event there weren't enough banks in any given country to form a Visa organization, then those individual banks could continue to be direct members of Visa uh, International. Uh, now, as this grew, the decision to utilize a common staff for each of these, which was managed also and hired by the CEO of Visa International, meant that we would assign a staff to each region, and the president of each region would have dual authority both to their regional board and also to me as CEO of Visa International. 
So over the years, as the organization grew, over the 14 years that I continued as CEO of the totality, at the end of it, I was reporting to four boards on separate continents, and those boards were composed of more than 100 directors, all executive officers of banks, and all unable to command a single bank to do anything. In other words, we could create programs, but it was up to each individual bank to do things in any way they chose. So the the entire system was self-organizing and governing. Uh, You know, we could go on and on with details of how this was done, but it's all a matter of history now. It's been such an honor to study your work, Dee, and spend this time with you recording these sessions, but also chasing you for two years before that. There was a quote that I used to use by you a lot because it really does describe what it's like to be a change maker. Because you mentioned those leaders, the Gandhis of the world, the Martin Luther Kings, they were not born into a position of privilege yet. They decided to make a change in the world. But here's the challenge with that. And I quote you here when I say, the person who fights for a dying cause is admired, supported and honored. The person who fights for a new cause struggling to be born is misunderstood, reviled and attacked. Nothing is more difficult than taking the lead in a new order of things. That's very true, Aidan. It all arose out of my desire to understand those three questions that I've raised many times. Business has never been my first love. I just fell into it by accident because I had to make a living. But my real love has been literature and philosophy and trying to uh, what I describe as peel the onion, to get underneath the surface of things and try to understand what what's really happening, uh, both good and bad, and, and how we can um, change things for the better. And one thing that has always puzzled me is where did this desire for control and certainty uh, come from uh, uh, that this this insatiable desire we have societally to try to to dominate and control everything from a central point and i uh, for decades i've puzzled over that desire for certainty and control and our worship of science and rationality as the path to the to the realization of control and it led me to a fascinating question What would it be like if one had infinite, absolute control, and what would be required to achieve it? Well, to begin with, it would require omniscience about past, present, and future, a knowledge of every entity that's ever been or ever could be, along with knowledge of when, where, and how they acted, or mind act, and every nuance of the result of their actions. Because one could never control 
that which could not be known until after it happened. So mystery and surprise would be intolerable and would have to be eliminated to have perfect control. And such perfect knowledge of entities and events wouldn't be enough. It would be necessary to know the thoughts, emotions, and desires of every human being and every other living entity. All their hopes, fears, joys, and urges. And not just other people, but everything that oneself might ever think, know, imagine, or experience. And even beyond that, it would be necessary to be rid of all emotions and feelings, for such things can catch us unaware and affect our behavior. Compassion would have to go. Love would have to go. Admiration, envy, desire, hate, nostalgia, along with every aesthetic sensibility. Perfect control would also require that one be the sole possessor of such infinite knowledge and personal composure. All of this reveals little, for it leaves unanswered the important part of the question, what would it be like to be the sole possessor of infinite, total, absolute control? And at first, it seems as though it would be akin to being a god, at least as gods are normally conceived to be. But what would one's life be like under such circumstances? And the further I, I got into this, all of a sudden, it kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning. Total, true, absolute control would be death. Absolute perfect control is only in the coffin. Life is uncertainty, surprise, hate, wonder, speculation, love, joy, pain, mystery, beauty, and a thousand other things we can't even imagine. Control requires denial of life. Life is not about certainty or controlling. It's not about getting. It's not about having. It's not about knowing. It's not even about being. Life is eternal, perpetually becoming, or it is nothing. And becoming is not a thing to be known, commanded, or controlled. It's a magnificent, mysterious odyssey to be experienced. At bottom, desire to command and control is a deadly, destructive compulsion to rob oneself and others of the joys of living. Is it any wonder that a society whose worldview and internal model of reality is that the universe and all therein should be mechanistic, hierarchical, and controllable, or that it should turn destructive? Is it any wonder that a society that worships the primacy of measurement, prediction, command, and control should result in massive destruction of the environment 
gross maldistribution of wealth and power, enormous destruction of species, the Holocaust, the hydrogen bomb, genocide, and countless other horrors? How could it be otherwise when we've conditioned ourselves for centuries to seek ever more powerful notions of domination, engineered solutions, mechanistic societal organization, compelled behavior, and separable self-interest? Tyranny is tyranny no matter how well intended, carefully rationalized, or unconsciously perpetuated. And it is that to which we persuaded ourselves for centuries, day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation, in thousands of subtle ways. It need not have been so in the past. It need not be so now. And it cannot be so in any livable future. 